Well, at this time, let's turn in our Bibles to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, chapter 3, and verse 20. Genesis 3, verse 20, and we'll read through till the end of the chapter, and then the first verse of Genesis chapter 4. So, chapter 3, verse 20, to chapter 4, verse 1. Again, that's on page 5 in your pew Bible. Let's listen now to God's holy word. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. May God bless the reading of His Word to us this evening, along with the preaching as well. Amen. Well, let's keep our finger on Genesis chapter 3 as we seek the Lord's help and guidance this evening in considering the salvation of our first parents. Up to this point, we've seen Adam and Eve falling into sin. We put that entire series of events under the microscope. We've seen Satan's role, Eve's role, Adam's role. God is the first evangelist coming into the garden to confront them and to bring a message of judgment and of curse, but also of hope and blessing and salvation through the seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head and set evil, sinful, depraved mankind at enmity with the serpent and in a covenant of friendship with God Himself. And now we see the fruit. We see the salvation of our first parents We see in response to the curse of God upon the serpent, upon Eve, and upon Adam, Adam responds in verse 20. So we're going to focus our attention especially as we begin on verse 20, where Adam is said to take action in response to the curse that has been pronounced. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now we need to take stock of who is speaking here and the sin that Adam has committed and really Eve as well. Our first parents could arguably be classified as the worst of sinners in all of human history. As Paul would say, the chief of sinners. Because through their sin, through Eve's sin and then giving to Adam and then Adam, the representative of all of us, completely 
cast this world into darkness and death and destruction. He, he, he brought about the curse of God upon this entire created world. And so you think of all the evil things in this world, all the sin, all the misery, pretty much everything that we read about in Romans chapter 1, the ingratitude, the idolatry, the immorality, the perversion, the chaos, everything in the curse that heaven reverses, the pain, the suffering, the death, everything. Think of all the tragedies that you're aware of in human history. All of these things have come upon this earth because of the sin of our first parents in eating that forbidden fruit. And we've seen that there are a number of accompanying sinful patterns and thought processes involved. But essentially, by eating that forbidden fruit, they opened Pandora's box and brought all that is wicked and miserable into this world. They did it on our behalf, and certainly we have a measure of responsibility for that in Adam as our representative, but Adam is the one who actually committed the sin personally. So here we have Adam and Eve, the most destructive sinners in human history. And they had everything going for them, right? You can think of all the other sins that people committed. You think of Judas betraying the Lord. Well, why did Judas betray the Lord? Because he was a sinner, totally depraved, because Adam sinned. So you can trace all the other sins back to the sin of our first parents in eating the forbidden fruit. So in a way, you could blame them for all the other sins that might be competitors as you're trying to rank the worst sinners of all time. So Understand when we talk about Adam and Eve being saved, that should not only be amazing to us, it should really almost push the envelope a little bit. In some sense, it's scandalous. It's scandalous. There are people in hell today who sinned and fell in Adam and inherited that sinful nature and the guilt of Adam's first sin. There are many people in hell today And there will be many for all eternity. Adam's sin is monumental. We we cannot even begin to grapple with its implications and its after effects. So when we say that Adam and Eve are saved, that's equally monumental. That God would save the perpetrators of this horrific sin. These are the chiefs of sinners, the worst of sinners. In Adam, all die. Case closed. These are the worst. But we see here that Adam and Eve are saved. That should tell us something about the character of God. That the character of God is so merciful and gracious that we, especially as sinful, ungracious, bitter, and exacting, and... and, uh, you know, sinful human beings. We can't understand it. Our sin keeps us from understanding. The fact that, as Romans 1 says, we're unloving, unmerciful, unforgiving. We can't even begin to understand why God would do this or even that God would do this. But I wonder if even the sinless angels who are loving and and merciful, it, it makes you wonder if even they can wrap their minds around the fact that after spitting in God's face and seeking to essentially, in principle, murder God and take His place and be God's themselves, that God would have mercy 
on Adam and Eve. Don't think that Adam and Eve are more savable or more worthy of salvation or that it's less scandalous for Adam and Eve to be saved than for the devil to be saved. I mean, maybe you have an argument there. I'm not aware of how, how you could distinguish the two. They both deserve hell. And it's, it's just as scandalous for God to save Adam and Eve as it would be if God had made a plan to save the devil. So here we find the salvation of our first parents, and it just knocks our socks off. But we need to dive in and take, take a look at this because this is the gospel. This is the sovereign free grace of God. This is, as one author says in describing the parable of the prodigal son, he titles his book, The Prodigal God. Because the word prodigal uh, is used to describe the son who goes out and lives this um, luxurious lifestyle that's so decadent and just laying it on thick and, and purchasing all these things and you know, wearing the fur coat. and you know, he, he just All, all the, the luxuries that, that we think of when we think of the prodigal son. But this author, in describing the parable of the prodigal son, actually says that the most prodigal thing in the parable, the most exorbitant, shocking display in the parable is the father receiving his wayward son, receiving him back into the household, giving him the ring on his finger and the shoes on his feet and the robe on his back and, and restoring him and then slaughtering the fattened calf and having a celebration. That's over the top. That's prodigal. That's a prodigious display of just throwing all these resources, all of this money for this party to welcome back the son that despised you and took all of your wealth and went to the foreign land. So I, I think there's something to that. And here with the salvation of Adam and Eve, we see in that sense our prodigal God going way over and above what we could possibly envision in lavishing mercy and grace upon the worst of sinners. Well, the first thing this evening that we see here in this passage is conversion. Conversion. That is a change of heart that takes place in the life of Adam and Eve. We know that conversion is the result of regeneration. Regeneration is that one moment in time when God takes out the old heart of stone and gives a beating heart of flesh where a person is born again by the Spirit of God. God flips the switch and they go from being lost and dead in sin to like Lazarus, arising from the dead. And conversion is the result of regeneration. So God flips the switch, they, they come back from the dead, they're, they're regenerate, they're saved, they have new eyes, a new perspective and all these things. But now they exercise faith and repentance That's conversion. So if somebody asks you to recount your own conversion, don't think that they're asking you to recount your regeneration. We don't necessarily know. Some of us might have an inkling, but most of us don't know the moment that God flipped the switch. But we can recount our earliest memory of repenting and believing. So don't feel that you need to be intimidated if you grew up in the church and you never remember a day where you didn't trust in Christ and so on. Don't feel like that is a subpar conversion story. When you get asked that question, you need to recount your earliest memory of repenting and believing. 
if you can't recount any point where you repented and believed in Christ, you are not converted or you, you, you don't really have a, a testimony of conversion. That's a concern, a huge concern. But if you say, well, I don't remember a time when I didn't repent and believe, well, just remember the earliest one that you can think of and recount that and talk about the progress that you made. So regeneration is a mystery, but conversion is a real tangible thing where you, by the grace of regeneration, you repent and believe. You turn from sin to God through Christ, receiving His mercy. And that is something that happens in history. We see the fruit of that in the lives of Adam and Eve. And in particular here, let's think of Adam first. So we see Adam's repentance. Verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of of all living. And you say, well, that, that's just one verse, and you know, are we just going to sit here and put that under the microscope? Well, yes, we are, because you know, the, the Bible would be ten times longer if God gave us all the details and every single word that was spoken in these conversations. God gives us enough to summarize what's taking place, and we're to put it under the microscope and look at it and compare it with other things in that same context. So here we have Adam naming his wife. Now you may recall that when God first came to Adam and gave him a wife, that Adam responded, verse 23 of chapter 2, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She shall be called Isha for she was taken out of Ish. That's the the Hebrew language here that... uh, I suppose it it seems as though that that he's speaking Hebrew here. But in any event, he names her. And he names her as an act of love and affection and appreciation and of compassionate leadership and headship. He is the, the leader, the head of the home. He names her, not in the same way as he names the animals, obviously, but there is a sense in which his dominion comes into play. And just like parents name their child, he names his wife and he does it in a way to adorn her, to show his love and his, his appreciation for the fact that she is a helper comparable to him, that they're equally human, that there's a, a, a beautiful symmetry there. there. There's a diversity, but there's a unity between them. And so the word for the man is Ish, and the word that he uses to name Eve is Isha. He's saying, you're like me, and yet you're different. There's a a beautiful picture of his love, an expression of his love for his wife in that passage. And yet, through sin, the whole marriage relationship is broken down. We saw that through chapter 3. Adam and Eve are hiding from each other with the fig leaves. They're hiding from God. They're playing the blame game. And, you know, Adam's no longer appreciating his wife. He's blaming her, throwing her under the bus. It's her fault. When God calls him on the carpet... What does he do? He, he sweeps his own sin under the carpet, under the rug, and he, he, he says, it's the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me of the tree, and I ate. So his sin is just a little footnote stuck in at the end, but really what's paramount here that God needs to understand is that the woman God gave him was defective and deficient, and she's the cause of all, this, all these problems. So he loses his tender appreciation for Eve. And again, we're calling her Eve. Really, her name was Isha up to that point. 
But you find that sometimes when you're referring to Abraham, but really he was Abram at that point when you're, you know, we don't want to be too precise here. It's Eve, but she doesn't get the name Eve till chapter 3, verse 20. And by naming her, and by naming her something positive, he, he doesn't name her like Naomi in the book of Ruth. He doesn't name her Mara for she's a source of bitterness or something like that. He, he names her something good. Her sin has contributed to the onset of death and curse in this world, and yet he names her the mother of all living. He sees her part in God's plan of redemption. As we'll see in a moment, he believes that promise, but he sees her part in God's plan as an asset, not a liability. He's not blaming her. He's appreciating and honoring her role in advancing the kingdom of God on earth. So this is his response to the promise of God's salvation. He turns from his sinful attitude toward his wife. He turns from playing the blame game with his wife. This is a sign of repentance in relationships. When we stop blaming, stop demonizing, stop you know, trying to make it sound like, oh, if the other person would, would do this, this, and this, the whole world would be perfect. Adam repents of that sinful attitude and in tender appreciation names his wife Eve, the mother of all living. We also see his faith. It's impossible not to connect this naming of Eve, the mother of all the living, with the promise of eternal life that God gives through the seed of the woman. When God curses the serpent, Embedded in that curse on the serpent is a blessing upon God's elect people. That God is going to save and elect people. He's going to set them at enmity with the serpent. They're not going to be in league with Satan. They're going to be regenerated to be at war with Satan in a covenant of friendship with God Himself. And He's going to send a seed, a descendant of Eve, a seed of the woman, verse 15, And there's going to be this battle royal between Satan and his offspring, the world, and Christ and his, or Eve and and her offspring, and, and, and this collective, singular, Christ and his people, the battle between the church and the world. And he says that he shall bruise your head. Christ will crush the serpent's head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent will latch on to strike with deadly poison the heel of Christ. We see it at the cross, the shedding of blood, death, and yet Christ in dying will crush the serpent's head. So this is a promise of the gospel that there will be a Savior that is to come and Eve is going to be saved through childbearing and through faith and love and holiness with self-control. She's going to be a means to that end of God's redemptive plan. And Adam recognizes that and names her accordingly. He says, yes, God is going to use her in the way that He promised that He would use her. So it's not just His love for Eve, but it's also His faith in God's promise. Now, of course it's true that Eve is going to be the mother of all human beings on the face of the earth throughout history. And so we have to be very careful. There are seductive teachers out there that will try to focus so much on the emphasis on eternal life and the gospel that they'll say, oh, well, you see, Eve's just the mother of all who have eternal life, and it's talking about all who have life in Christ spiritually, but not all human beings 
descend back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are not the sole progenitors of the human race because that would contradict evolutionary theories of genetics and so on. That, that is absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. In fact, it's not a new error. That's, I was just reading yesterday in a theology book that's hundreds of years old. Hundreds of years old. And uh, they're dealing with that same error back in the day. So we need to be careful. She is the mother of all living human beings throughout history. That is true. But there's a compound meaning here that it's emphasizing in that capacity as mother of the human race, she's also the mother of all who have eternal life because it's through her that the Savior, the Prince of Life, will come into the world. So we see Adam believing that promise, naming his wife accordingly. We also see a great change, a great conversion in the life of Eve. Now we have to wait till the beginning of chapter 4 for that. In response to Adam's faith and repentance, God clothes Adam and Eve, and we'll look at that in a second, but he, he clothes Adam and Eve in these animal skins as a token, as a confirmation, almost like a sacrament to receive them into his church as members of his covenant. But we're not to think that it's only Adam that was converted here because we have the rest of the story as we continue to read in these chapters, we see fruit of Eve's conversion. So chapter 4, verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now typically in the Bible, the father would name the child. That's typical. We're not, we're not sure here whether Eve is the one actually naming Cain. It's possible that she is. Uh, she bore Cain and then said, I have acquired a man from the Lord because the word acquired is connected to the word Cain. That's why she's saying that, just like with Jesus. You'll call his name Jesus for he'll save his people from their sins because the name Jesus means Jehovah saves. In this case, she bears Cain, her firstborn, and says, I have acquired, I have caned, I guess, a man from the Lord. Maybe Adam named Cain, maybe Eve did. We don't know, but either way, Eve loses no time in embracing the meaning of this name. That this name of her firstborn is reflective of God's covenant promise. I have acquired a man from the Lord. That's not just saying, oh, God gave me a child. And, and of course, that is a blessing when God gives children. But here we're saying, here Eve is saying, this is the first step of the fulfillment of the promise that God will send this seed. Now, some have speculated that the Hebrew grammar here suggests that Eve is actually thinking that Cain is the Messiah. I have acquired a man, the Lord. That's how it reads in the Hebrew. The preposition from is not there. So Luther and others uh, who, who tend to latch on to these kind of things have made a big point that she's saying, I have acquired a man, the Lord, the God-man, Messiah. Now, I'm not prepared to affirm that, that that's definitely the meaning here. 
But I think it's, it's absolutely the case that she is viewing this as the first step at the very least. Maybe she does think it's the God-man mediator. But the point is at the very least, she sees it as a fulfillment from Jehovah, the Lord. Remember when Satan tempted her, he didn't use God's covenantal name. All throughout the early chapters of Genesis, we see God referred to as Jehovah God, the Lord God. Yahweh or Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God. Emphasizing not only that He is God, but that He is the Lord, Jehovah, the self-existent, faithful, covenant God. And when Satan tempted Eve, he started by saying, has God indeed said? It's very subtle, but he's, he's referring to the Lord God as God. And if you look at that section in its context, it really jumps off the page. That all of a sudden, it's the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, and now he's just God. That covenantal aspect is missing. It's not missing when Eve speaks in chapter 4, verse 1. She views this son, Cain, as a gift from her covenant God, Jehovah, the I Am, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, So we see her faith, and we also see her repentance. I have acquired a man from the Lord. What did Satan attack in the life of Eve when he tempted her? by that forbidden tree. What did he he do? He tried to persuade her that what God had provided her was inadequate. God was holding her down. God was suppressing her well-being, her potential. He, He got her to disbelieve God, to disbelieve God's goodness, to think that God was giving her idle threats and that really if she ate the fruit that was forbidden, she would become a God. She would be great and amazing and wise and and have this thing that was so pleasant and so desirable. And so she took of its fruit and she ate. But here we see, even in the midst of pain and suffering in childbirth, which we, which we see in this chapter was the case. We should, we should assume that giving birth to Cain was painful. It was difficult. The first birth ever, it's not like you had, uh, you know, I mean, all you had was Adam. You know, he, he was the... Uh, the midwife, I suppose. So this, this is a new experience, pain, suffering, uncertainty of the highest order. And yet, notice, she's content. She's happy to receive what the Lord has given her. And, and that's a testimony to a change of heart in her life. We, don't, we can't think that faith and repentance are always going to show themselves in these amazing big, larger-than-life episodes in life. Sometimes, sometimes faith and repentance show themselves in the subtleties, in, in, in situations like this. She has a child, and look at the response. She's grateful. She's content with what God has given. She's even joyful, though it is painful. So we see the conversion of Adam and Eve. The sovereign grace of God brings them from death to life, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Secondly, We see reconciliation. Reconciliation. Verse 21, in response to Adam's virtual profession of faith by naming Eve in the way that he did, notice what happens. Also, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So the Lord God, their covenant God, 
responds to Adam's naming of Eve by making tunics of skin and clothing Adam and Eve. Now at this point, let's remind ourselves the situation. Originally, Adam and Eve had their pathetic attempt to cover their shame, the the fig leaves adorning their naked, basically naked bodies. They're hiding in the trees of the garden. They're afraid of God and they're angry and bitter toward each other. And God comes into the garden, He addresses them, so on and so forth. But now, notice that God clothes their shame and their nakedness. They have pathetically tried to cover their shame. They have this sense in their conscience that they are unclean, that they are dirty, that they are vulnerable, that they are exposed to each other. And in the sight of God, they've tried to cover it with their own fig leaves, with the fruit of the ground, rather than through the shed blood of a sacrifice. And just like, just like Cain later on, trying to cover it essentially in their own good works. And God deals with that issue. They're reconciled to God and God covers their shame. How does He do it? Well, He makes tunics. Tunics. Now, some Baptist authors uh, have attempted to define for us the exact dimensions of these tunics for the purposes of, of Christian modesty. And, and, and I think probably they've gone beyond the bounds of what Scripture explicitly teaches. But these are going to give you a lot better coverage than a fig leaf. Let's put it that way. God gives them a, a full-body covering He covers the shame of their nakedness and really shows the inadequacy of the fig leaves. And I think we can assume that the fig leaves are discarded and now the tunics come to take their place. And this is a beautiful picture. I mean, this is not just pragmatic for the purpose of establishing the biblical ordinance or the divine ordinance of clothing, though it is that. But this is, this, is a, an, this is a beautiful picture of redemption. This is, in a way, a one-time sacrament. Not something they would have repeated over and over again, but this was, as it were, a sacrament. Not just saying that human beings should always cover themselves and be modest and wear clothing, but this is representing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what it's saying is that in order to be saved, we need to repudiate any attempt to cover our nakedness, our shame, our sin with anything other than the the shed blood and perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. If we try to make it better with our own attempts to reconcile ourselves to God, to climb the staircase to heaven, to do good works that, you know, we can we can cover and clothe and, you know, that is that is utterly inadequate. We need a righteousness. We need a tunic. We need a covering. And you see this illustrated later in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Israel, Judah, had been unfaithful and sinful and fallen into idolatry, and God had sent them into exile in Babylon, and they were filthy in the sight of God, collectively speaking. And God gives them a vision here through Zechariah that pictures His forgiveness and the cleansing power of His Gospel. It says, Then He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And that angel of the Lord, that's the angel of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, before He came in the flesh. 
So the high priest in this vision is standing next to the angel of the covenant who's manifested in some kind of physical way, probably as a human, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Satan, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren, is standing there. So you've got the high priest representing the sinful people in in the presence of God. You have the angel of the covenant, Christ, the Redeemer to come. And you have Satan who's there to accuse these people of sin and to point out their filthiness and their shame to oppose them. And the Lord said to Satan... The Lord rebuke you, Satan. I think we're to understand that when it says the Lord, it means the angel of the Lord here. There are other reasons for that in other books of the Bible. But I think the Lord here is speaking of the angel of the Lord. He says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, collectively, he says what is true individually of every believer. That they are hell-deserving sinners that have been plucked from the fire. They've been converted. They've been restored. They've been justified. They've been forgiven. Satan brings the accusation, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is Christ who has died. And more than that, is risen and ascended to the right hand, interceding for His people. And here He intercedes for His people. This is a brand plucked from the fire. Now listen to how this is represented here. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. Take away these filthy garments that represent the disobedience, the idolatry, even the best works of righteousness that are like filthy rags. Take away these fig leaves. Take away these filthy garments. Take them away. My friends, that's what happens when a sinner is justified in the sight of God. All of their sins have been imputed to Jesus Christ on the cross. All of their sin is taken away. It was laid upon Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. All of our iniquity, Isaiah 53 says, God laid it upon Christ. Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. That is a promise that every believer can quote. When you feel the accusation of conscience, when you sense the guilt, and you've confessed your sins, and you're striving to forsake them, and and you've confessed them to other people that you've sinned against, and you've repented, but you still feel the burden of guilt on your back, Go to this passage and hear Jesus say to you, look, take away the filthy garments from him. See, I have removed your iniquity. That's Jesus speaking to his people. See, look to the cross and behold, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, this is Zechariah, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by overseeing this process. So the filthy sin is taken away. It is replaced with the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ throughout his entire life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, all of his perfect obedience in this life, in this world, during his incarnation. All of that is credited to the believer as a garment of salvation. 
And that's why Isaiah beautifully describes the justified believer who's had his iniquity taken away and is clothed in this beautiful garment. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Are you struggling to be joyful? Oftentimes we are. We struggle to be joyful. It's a fruit of the Spirit. We know we should be joyful. But even really at the point where we're saying, I should be joyful, you know, we've kind of lost the battle at that point if it's just an obligation to be joyful. How do we regain our joy? How did Adam and Eve, in the midst of this horrific curse, you're going to live a hard life, hard labor, and you're going to return to the ground. All the darkest elements of this fallen world are set before them. And here the Lord comes to encourage them, to give them joy, so that as they're weeping, being ushered out of the garden, nevertheless, they can have true spiritual joy and they can count it all joy because what has been a curse is now a chastisement. They're now children of God. What had been a curse, a judgment for their sin, is now a chastisement to make them more holy and to give them a greater experience of the love of God in Christ Jesus. How do we find joy? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. How do, we, how do we have that joy in the Lord? For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. My friends, we could get into principles of modesty. The gospel covers, you know, when you see the gospel rising and thriving in a society, you see modesty. When you see the gospel you know, a sort of spiritual nosedive theologically and spiritually. You see, you see immodesty. But let's look, let's look beyond that. That's there, yes. But think of the spiritual meaning here. The Gospel gives you a covering in the sight of God that makes you not only acceptable, not only that you kind of pass through the turnstile, but makes you beautiful. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Beauty. Beauty for ashes. Not just righteousness. Beauty. Glory. Shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father. Even now, my friends, by faith, we can have that beaming, glowing joy that our sins, our iniquities have been taken away. We are light as a feather. The burden has been lifted. And we can leap as calves from the stall. We have God as our God. We have forgiveness. We have freedom and liberty of conscience. But notice, these are tunics of skin. God did not shear a sheep and then pat the sheep and let it go run off. Death took place. And seemingly, this is the first example of death in the Bible. The first time someone or something has to die, any of the creatures in which was the breath or spirit of life, the first mammalian death, however you want to put it, but this is the beginning. And yet, notice the first example of physical death in the created world is in connection with the gospel. 
God kills an animal or animals, however much, uh, again, it depends. Our Baptist friends could tell us the square footage of the, the garments. But God kills an animal or additional animals and takes the skin and makes a garment, clothing for Adam and Eve. And it requires the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so the only way that we can have our shame covered is if we are willing to be humbled by, in a sense, the shameful reality that our sins require the death of the Son of God. See, There's a sense in which as believers, we will never see shame. We will never see the curse and, and righteous wrath of God against us and that eternal shame of hell. We don't have that shame. We don't have that shame of our nakedness. But we're humbled. And we come before the Lord with shamefacedness as Daniel does in Daniel 9. Why? Because he understands that his salvation was purchased or would be purchased by Messiah the Prince who in order to reconcile his people and put an end to sin and bring in everlasting righteousness would have to be slain even as the lamb or the bull or the goat or the ox was slain in this ordinance of animal sacrifice. So there's death there's blood, there's humility in the midst of this joy. They, God enables them to mingle trembling with their mirth. They have to watch or at least understand the reality that there is a dead animal that just is the, the first dead thing they've ever seen. So it's humbling. And they're clothed with the skin of this sacrificial animal as a picture of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And you can also see the imagery here with the flaming sword. Once they're sent out of the garden, God puts a cherubim, puts an angel at the doorway of the garden with a flaming sword. And that flaming sword manifests the, the judgment of God and keeps Adam and Eve from ever being able to get back into that paradise, into that garden of Eden. The flaming sword of judgment that guards the way into God's holy presence and into that garden temple of fellowship with the Lord. Well, my friends, it's that flaming sword of justice that was unsheathed against the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how God killed the ultimate sacrifice, as Zechariah later says, that God, God unsheathes the sword of His justice against the shepherd and strikes the shepherd with that sword of justice, the Lord Jesus Christ. So He was pierced for our transgressions. The same sword that keeps us out of that fellowship pierced Him so that we could have a new and living way into the presence of God and spend eternity in a paradise of fellowship with Him. It's a beautiful thing that we see here. And notice it's the Lord God that did it. Who made the tunics of skin? Who conducted the sacrifice and killed the animal? Who clothed them? The text is clear. The Lord God clothed them. The Lord God covered them. And my friends, we need to remember that as well. That salvation is a work of God. It's not something that we do. It's not something when we come into worship, yes, we're actively involved in worshiping God and bringing our sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. Yes, that's true, but ultimately, we are the recipients of God's work. We're here to confess that He has done it. It is finished, 
and that we're merely the recipients of His almighty sovereign grace. And that's what gives us assurance. When anyone brings an accusation against God's elect, how do we respond? We respond with Paul that it is God who justifies. It is Christ who died. He's the one who conducted the sacrifice. He's the one who clothed us. He's the one who covered our shame. So unless you're going to undo the redemptive work of the unchangeable God, that accusation is going to fall flat. Reconciliation. Thirdly, finally, fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Notice verse 23. God within the triune council of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come together in verse 22 and there's this discussion of the fact that the man can't be allowed back into the garden to eat of the tree of life. In other words, it it would be bad for Adam and Eve to think that they can enter back into paradise and live forever as if nothing had happened. And in a way, it's really in their best interest to not live forever because they're totally depraved. The only way they're actually going to get to heaven is by dying. It's, It's through being absent from the body that they're going to be present with the Lord and then await the second coming of Christ. So death is actually a good thing for Adam and Eve. You wouldn't want, I hope, I mean, if you understand anything about the reality of this world, you would not want to live on planet Earth forever in a sinful, miserable condition. So God, verse 23, therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24, so he drove out the man. Now, we tend to think of this in a negative sense, but let's think about this. It doesn't simply say that God drove them out. It says that He sent them out. Now, they've been converted. He's displayed this emblem of their salvation in clothing, their nakedness and their shame. And we're told that, verse 23, He sent them out. Now, it's probably the case that when He sent them out, they weren't too eager to go out. And so that's why in the next verse, He has to drive them out. Because Adam and Eve just don't want to leave. And I think there's something there for us to reflect on about how glorious that garden paradise was and how much we've lost in this world. But nevertheless, the original directive is not driving them out, but sending them out. And this is important, as I said, at this point, these are children of God, and their proper response to all of this is to respond to it as a chastisement, not as a curse. This is a chastisement. God is going to work all these things together for their good, and He's sending them out for their good as children of God. If they're saved, we know that's true. He's sending them out for their good. And their proper response ought to be, though outwardly it's a bit disturbing to leave paradise and go out into the the great unknown, the wilderness, and so on. Nevertheless, their response should be, here am I, send me. There are times in our lives where the consequences of our sin drive us out of situations and blessings that we enjoy. And, And because of that, we can resist those things. We, we, can, we, can force, we, we can make the Lord, in a sense, drive us out when really we should be sent out and realize that 
Yes, there are consequences for sin, but God's going to work that together for good as well. And I've been reflecting in recent months upon the different judicial trials in our denomination, and and we've had uh, at least one of our ministers has been removed from office, and elders have been temporarily suspended from office and called to repentance. And I've been trying to reflect for myself. If I'm in that situation, what would repentance look like? I've been sent out from my office as a consequence of my sin. I've been perhaps driven out because I'm resisting that, but, I've, but here I am, I'm, I'm walking out of the garden, out of this situation, into the great unknown, into this period of chastisement. Uh, and I think, I think the right response there of repentance is to take it as being sent, that God has a plan. This is the God who restores us. This is the God who is with us, even in our periods of chastisement. This is the God who will never leave us nor forsake us. So don't, don't force the Lord to drive you out. Be sent out and follow where it takes you in the providential plan of God and deal with the consequences of sin in a receptive way. Easier said than done. I'm just saying I think this is a way for us to think about these types of situations. Now, very briefly, and I don't want to take up a whole lot more time, but you see that when Adam and Eve are sent out, they eventually embrace this calling and they are fruitful in this calling. They eventually say, all right, here am I, send me, or you've driven me out, so here I am, I'm going to go forth and we're going to be fruitful and multiply. We see that at the beginning of chapter 4. We see that in their family, that they receive this instruction from God sacrificing that animal and giving them clothing. And so they teach their children, Cain and Abel, to worship the Lord. There's some type of family worship and offering happening. Obviously, some of those offerings are better than others, and, and we could talk about that. But Adam and Eve are imparting the knowledge of God's truth and covenant to their children. And we're told that they have quite a few children. Chapter 5, verse 4. After you know, Cain kills Abel and then Cain, uh, Cain is exiled, we're told Adam begot Seth. The days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. So he lived 930 years. Perhaps Eve lived a very similar period of time. And in the course of these chapters, we find that that was between eight and nine generations of his posterity. So Adam not only teaches Cain and Abel to bring their offering, instructs them in the faith of God's promise, recounts his own personal testimony of sin and the fall and how God converted him and clothed Adam and Eve in in those garments of righteousness. Adam is actively leading and governing and... and, uh, overseeing his family as the patriarch for 930 years, for nine generations down to Noah's father Lamech. And that's when, that's when Adam dies in the days of Lamech. So nine generations. Uh, Mr. Hughes talked about taking the morning sermon and inserting it into the psalm meditation, but we could take the psalm meditation and insert it here because Psalm 78 is, is a perfect example of what Adam and Eve did. They imparted the truths that God revealed to them to their children for nine generations. And we see that in chapter 4, verse 25, 
Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So after a couple generations, you have uh, not just family worship, but a congregation of worshipers in this pre-flood human environment. So they gather for worship. There is the institution of animal sacrifice. There's an altar of sacrifice. Probably they're gathering near the flaming sword at the gate of the garden as a sort of central location. But in any event, there is a church. There's a, there's a godly family, nine generations. There is a church that's formed throughout the, the, the early civilization. Cain goes east of Eden, but... Adam's civilization, the the descendants of Seth, maintain a godly church environment for many, many generations to come. And there's actually a godly society. You have the world with Cain's descendants and their emphasis upon building cities and having all the latest, greatest economic and technological advances and music and art. Not that that's bad, but, but that's their focus, the things of this world to the exclusion of God. But you see in Adam's descendants through Seth that Enoch walked with God. The seventh generation is a picture of that civilization as it had come to perfection from Seth all the way down to that seventh generation where Enoch walked with God and he was no more. He was a pilgrim. He was an exile and God took him to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city above. So my friends, you can see that the the long-term fruitfulness of Adam and Eve in imparting God's truth to their children, teaching them how to worship, family worship, public worship, and even a godly society such that it's not until Genesis chapter 6 that this godly society, which is described as the sons of God, not angels, but the professing children of God, the worshipers of Jehovah, the covenant people of God, Genesis 6, 1 through 3, it says it's not until that point, roughly 480 years after Adam died, that this godly society began to fall apart because the children of God intermarried with unbelievers. And the godly society of Seth merged with the ungodly descendants of Cain. But that's hundreds of years after Adam died. So we assume that up to that point, the society wasn't falling apart, it was flourishing. And their society is described here as being the sons of God. So when we look at the curse of God upon Adam and Eve, we we can't merely dwell upon the negatives as we did last Lord's Day evening, but we need to recognize that God blessed their work. God blessed their diligent labor to advance His kingdom by teaching their children, by gathering for worship, worshiping God as He commanded, by trusting in the blood of Christ to come and in that sacrifice, by applying God's Word to all areas of life and seeking to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven, like like Enoch walking with God in heavenly mindedness. We often lose sight of what's here beneath the surface in these chapters, that Adam and Eve were exceedingly fruitful and productive for the kingdom of God. And there is hope of blessing 
there is hope of overcoming the curse because God is for us. And if God is for us, as He was for Adam and Eve here after their conversion, if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what good news You have revealed to us through the blood of Your Son, the seed of the woman who has crushed the serpent's head and who has brought about the first fruits of the new heaven and the new earth when He will make all things new. We thank You, Lord, that we are new creatures in Christ, that there is hope for our marriage relationships, for our work, for our parenting, that there is hope for all the things that You have cursed because they now become chastisements worked for our good that we may see the goodness of the Lord even in the land of the living. Impress us with these things and reassure us by faith in Christ that our iniquity has been removed and that we have been clothed in His perfection. We ask in His name. Amen.